Everything that Christians believe is built on the claim that Jesus was crucified, died, and then three days later rose from the dead proving he was God. Even the Bible itself embraces this reality. In 1 Corinthians 15.4, in the New Testament of the Bible, the Apostle Paul writes, if Christ, which is Jesus, is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And many of us no reasons why the resurrection is provable, but we use the Bible as a reference to explain to people why they should have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. And before we can do that, we have to explain to people why they can have confidence in what the Gospels say about Jesus. And when we talk about the Gospels, we're talking about the four Gospels that are in the Bible, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this series is based in large part on an excellent book written by a man named Mark Roberts that's called Can We Trust the Gospels? And if you want to dig into even more details, you want to know the sources behind this information, I encourage you to pick up that book. It's written on the top of your notes. Last week we looked at the written and oral sources that were used by the gospel writers and learned why we can trust that those sources were accurate and why we could trust that the information was passed down accurately. This week we're going to deal with some more important questions like, are there contradictions in the Gospels? Many of you might have heard that accusation. Why are there so many differences between the Gospels? Or a favorite if you're into conspiracies, didn't Constantine get the Gospels in the Bible to suit his agenda? That's a very popular one online. We'll take a look at that. Let's begin with this. One of the critics' favorite attacks on the reliability of the four Gospels goes something like this. There are so many contradictions in the Gospels. Things happen in a different order. Jesus says things in some Gospels that he doesn't say in others. Some Gospels have him sharing things in a more detailed way than others. They're they're just clearly not reliable. There's too many contradictions. And so the first thing we need to do if we're going to look at this is we need to realize what the term contradiction actually means. I put the definition on your outline. When two things are contradictory, it means they are opposed to each other and cannot both therefore be true. So when someone says the Gospels contain contradictions, whether they realize it or not, They're claiming that the Gospels contain statements that cannot be true at the same time. They're saying one Gospel says this, the other one says this, and both of these statements cannot be true at the same time. That's what they're claiming when they say the Gospels have contradictions in them. But I'll jump right to the point. When you investigate these supposed contradictions in the Gospels, you'll generally find them to instead be complementary rather than contradictory. When something is complementary, it adds something because both things can be true at the same time. If I say you have great hair, something I long deeply to hear, but if I say you have great hair and then I also say, you know, and you look like you've been working out, both of those things can be true at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive, they can both be true. They're complementary complements, basically. Let me give you an example. So we actually looked at most of the supposed contradictions in the Gospels in our recent study on the resurrection when we were in our Jesus series. That's where 80% of these contradictions are that people want to point out, these supposed contradictions. In the resurrection account of who was where, how many angels were at the tomb, who went first, who saw first, who saw Jesus when, all of these things. And you might remember that one of these issues was that one of the Gospels claimed the woman encountered one angel at the tomb, while the other mentioned two angels. One gospel has one angel speaking, the other gospel mentions there being two angels. Now are these contradictory accounts? Is it impossible that these two statements could both be true at the same time? In reality, that's not the case, because one gospel records one angel speaking, 
the number one still fits in to the number two. So it's completely acceptable that one gospel writer may have simply mentioned only the angel who spoke while the other mentioned two angels. They are in fact possible to be complementary pieces of information. They would only be contradictory if one of the gospels claimed there was only one angel at the tomb because then it would be impossible for there to be only one angel and for there to also have been two. But that's not what they wrote. So instead, it's complementary information rather than contradictory information. And we could choose to do this exercise over and over and over with all of these supposed contradictions in the Gospels and we would find the same thing, that there's a reasonable explanation. The Gospel writers are focusing in on different things, things that one Gospel writer thinks are an important detail worth mentioning, another Gospel writer thinks is not worth mentioning because it doesn't meet the goal that he's writing his Gospel to accomplish. The bottom line is this, make a note of this. There are no contradictions in the Gospels. There are no contradictions in the Gospels. There are reasonable explanations if you take the time to do the research, if you apply logic, and if you look sometimes at the cultural context. But there are no contradictions in the Bible. What there are in the Gospels, however, are variations. And this really shouldn't be news to anyone who's actually read the Gospels. Events do take place in different orders between the four Gospels. Jesus does say and do things in some Gospels that he doesn't in others. And the wording of Jesus when he teaches is slightly different from Gospel to Gospel. These are not contradictions as we've just shown, but they are variations. They are differences. So why are there variations? Write this down. The first reason is that the gospel writers were actual eyewitnesses. They were actual eyewitnesses. And most upon hearing that would think, uh, I don't think that's really evidence for why there would be differences, Jeff. Wouldn't everything line up perfectly if they were all actual eyewitnesses? But the truth is no, it wouldn't. Because real eyewitnesses always have slight variations in their recollections of an event. They notice different things because they're different individual people. One person may recall the make and model of a vehicle because they're a car person. While another person may simply recall the color of the vehicle and the number of doors it had and how long it seemed to be because they're not a car person. Neither of them is lying they just noticed and therefore remembered different yet complementary details. In fact, police interrogators know that when they interview multiple suspects who may have participated in a crime, if their story lines up exactly precisely, it's an absolute guarantee that they've colluded together around a lie and rehearsed that lie because real eyewitnesses have variations in their recollections. The second reason for some of the variations in the Gospels is the style of writing. So we saw first that there's some variations because the gospel writers were different people. They remembered different little bits of information and that's normal and it's actually what police look for when they're doing an investigation. The second reason for the variations is the style of writing. So I don't know if you've ever purchased a book that would count as a historical biography, a written record of a significant person's life. I own several, including this one on the life of Billy Graham. It's a nice light read that'll take you a couple of hours. Today, historical biographies are, well, they're, they're pretty thick because they're pretty detailed and they're thoroughly researched, being sure to put all events in the correct order and not to leave out anything important. This one actually documents what Billy Graham wore every single day of his life. It's fascinating information. To this day, many people assume that the historical biography is the genre that the Gospels are trying to fit into. And so what people do is they compare the Gospels to our own historical biographies of today, which begins to present a whole lot of problems because a good historical biography doesn't leave things out. It doesn't jump over gaps in time. It doesn't move things around as far as the order of events go, which the Gospels do. However, 
Recent scholars have concluded that the four biblical gospels do actually fit perfectly into an ancient genre that's called the Hellenistic biography. Hellenistic biography. When something is Hellenistic, it just means that it's a part of Greek language, history, and culture. So what we're talking about is how biographies would have been written in ancient Greek culture, which was still the prevalent culture in and across the world during the days the gospel was written. Even though the Roman Empire was in power, Greek culture was still a dominant force across most of the world. By and large, Hellenistic biographies were far shorter, more focused works than the huge historical biographies that are written and published today. In fact, in a Hellenistic biography, it was common for the writer to skip over major portions of the subject's life to instead focus on key events or speeches that the person was involved in. These deeds and words were chosen and organized to make a moral statement to the reader that would highlight certain virtues of the subject because the end goal was that the writer hoped to encourage the reader to emulate, to copy the subject that he was writing about. In fact, to copy that subject's most virtuous characteristics. A modern day example, I was thinking about this, what would be helpful for today? A modern day example would be the 2010 movie, The King's Speech, which many of you have probably seen, I think won a couple of Oscars. Colin Firth plays relatively modern day, 20th century King George VI, who has a speech impediment, and in 1939, he has to make this nationally broadcast speech announcing that Britain is going to war with Germany. It's the beginning of World War II as far as Britain is concerned. Now, if that movie were turned into a written work, it would be a good example of a Hellenistic biography because it skips over enormous portions of the king's life and focuses in on this key event at this key time in his life so that it can teach the viewer or the reader about the importance of perseverance, courage, and confronting our weaknesses. That's what a Hellenistic biography did in written form. So when you look at the Gospels as Hellenistic biographies that were written to teach and encourage the reader to emulate Jesus, the variations in the Gospels and the moving around of events for the sake of theme begin to make a whole lot of sense. The third reason for the variations in the Gospels is the different target audiences, different target audiences. As we just mentioned, when you were writing a Hellenistic biography, your primary focus would be on highlighting certain attributes of your subject with the goal of getting your readers to emulate that subject. And in order to accomplish this goal, it was considered at the time completely acceptable to do things like paraphrase or rephrase statements and speeches or arrange events by theme rather than chronologically. And while this may be very, very different from our modern day historical biographies, it doesn't have any impact on whether or not the gospels are reliable. I'll give you an example. If I go on vacation to a lake house in the Okanagan and when I get back, you ask me, what did you guys do on vacation? In my head, what I might immediately do is I might think, okay, how can I remember every, everything we did? And what I might do is not give you the list in chronological order, but give you the list in geographical order. For example, I might begin with all the things we did at the lake house, like playing board games, making s'mores, shooting BB guns. And then I might move on to the things we did on and in the lake, like tubing, kneeboarding, swimming, kayaking. And then I might think of all the things we did away from the lake and the house, like climbing a mountain or riding bikes, etc. Now, if you somehow learned that I had shared that list of activities with you, and I had put those things in geographical order rather than chronological order, your response would not be, I used to think you were a truthful person, Jeff, but now I know you're a liar who sits on a throne of lies. You wouldn't have that response. You would only say that if you learned that I completely made something up and claimed we went on a hot air balloon ride when we never did that. Then you would say, well, well that's false information, Jeff. Because Hellenistic biographies were normal and prevalent at the time the Gospels were written, 
Nobody at that time would have accused the gospel writers of lying or being unreliable because they rearranged events for the sake of theme or paraphrased and rephrased some of the things Jesus said. They would not consider that to have any bearing on the reliability of what was written in that Hellenistic biography. And neither should we. Just doesn't make sense. The gospel writers stylized their writing for different audiences and different purposes. Without getting too deep into this, and and you don't need to make a note about this part, it's all over the internet, it's easy to find information. Here's what is known and widely accepted and has been accepted for centuries. Matthew was a Jew who was writing to Jews to highlight the fact that Jesus was the Messiah King who had been prophesied in the Jewish scriptures. Mark was written for a Gentile, mostly Roman audience to highlight Jesus as a suffering servant. In keeping with Roman attitudes of the time, it's fast moving and it's action packed. Luke was a Greek writing to Greeks to document the life of Jesus and highlight his humanity, his humanness. It's a thorough academic work that is written to a well-educated reader. John was written to everyone to highlight the reality that Jesus was both man and God. Its central focus is the divinity of Jesus. And these differences were known by the early church. They understood this. In fact, Irenaeus wrote about the distinctiveness of the four gospels using the information I just shared in 180 AD in his famous work Against Heresies. So the variations between the Gospels were not some secret that people noticed later as a problem. The early church was well aware of these variations. The early church just wasn't bothered by them because that's how biographies were written at that time. And everybody understood that. The proof of this is that the early church didn't try to change them. If these variations truly made the Gospels less credible, then surely the early church would have revised them. Surely they would have said, we've got to get the surviving gospel writers together, ASAP. We've got to get everyone who knows them together and get all this information harmonized into one account because nobody's taking these gospels seriously. Surely they would have done that if it was actually a problem, but that's not what happened. Instead, the early church preserved the four biblical gospels as we have them today, including their variations. Interestingly, around 175 AD, a Syrian Christian named Tatian actually blended all four of the Gospels together into one account called the Diatessaron. And he did this because he thought, you know, it might be helpful to some people, but it never caught on. The church didn't think the project was wrong or anything like that. The church's attitude was just, you know, we like the four different flavors of the four different Gospels. We like having four different perspectives. It just wasn't an issue for them. When someone says you can't trust the Gospels because the variations show they were written by shoddy historians, that person is guilty of a very big word. Which big word? The word anachronism. Anachronism. You can go ahead and put that on the screen, Janet. Anachronism is defined as an act of attributing a custom event or object to a period to which it does not belong. It's an act of attributing a custom event or object to a time period to which it does not belong. So when people claim that the Gospels are poor historical biographies, what they're doing is they're using our modern day historical biographies as the standard and then comparing them to these ancient Hellenistic biographies and they're asking the question, why aren't these things from 2,000 years ago like these things we have today? It's anachronism. It's the literary equivalent of saying, you can't trust the Gospels because they contain no photos or videos of Jesus. It's doing the exact same thing. It's an illogical and invalid argument. And by the way, if you ever have the opportunity to use the word anachronism in a sentence, you should definitely take it because it could be decades before you have that opportunity again. So I encourage you to find a way to bring that up in some way this week just so you can use the word and use it at least once. Now I want to take a second to to clarify something because some of you might have been disturbed or just a little bit uncomfortable to hear me say that the gospel writers in writing Hellenistic biographies of Jesus would have paraphrased or rephrased some of the statements and speeches of Jesus. 
And if that statement made you uncomfortable, it's probably because you hold to the same orthodox Christian belief that I do, that the word of God is inerrant. That means without error. And yet the fact that there are minor variations, not contradictions, but variations between the gospels isn't new information to any of us. We all know this. We've read the gospels, most of us, hopefully. The best way to come to terms with all of this is to understand the difference between two Latin terms. This is great for impressing your friends at parties. The first is ipsissima vox, and the second is ipsissima verba. Ipsissima verba means the very words. It means word for word. It means verbatim, the very voice. If I quote something you say, ipsissima verba, I am quoting you word for word. If you need help remembering it, just realize that verba is the beginning of the word verbatim, which means word for word. Now if I quote something you say, not word for word, but accurately conveying your tone and your intent, I am quoting you ipsissima vox. So imagine you give me a message to pass on to people and that message is we cannot be late for this meeting. If I pass on that message as you having said we have to be on time for this meeting, I would not have quoted you ipsissima verba. I didn't quote you word for word. But I did accurately convey your tone and your intent I still captured your voice, so I still quoted you ipsissima vox. As Christians, we believe that there are many instances in the Gospels where the writers capture the ipsissima vox of Jesus as opposed to the ipsissima verba of Jesus. And again, I I don't think this is groundbreaking information. If you've read the Gospels without realizing it, you should have subconsciously come to that same conclusion because we can read the same speech by Jesus in three of the synoptic Gospels and we'll notice that there's little words different from case to case. And it's impossible that all three, being slightly different, are capturing the exact words of Jesus. That's impossible, right? But we don't sweat it because when we compare the three accounts, we can see they've clearly all captured the ipsissima vox of Jesus. They've captured his voice accurately. And so just to encourage you, when we say that the Bible is inerrant, what we're saying is that it is without error. That means that we believe that Jesus chose to come to the earth as a man at a specific time for a specific reason. We believe he chose Israel for a reason. We believe he was a Jew for a reason. We believe it happened 2,000 years ago for a reason. That's why these terrible movies that try to imagine what it would be like if Jesus came to our world today, it's why they're so terrible, because it just doesn't work. There was too much going on. It had to be that specific time that Jesus chose to come at. We also believe that Jesus chose his disciples intentionally. He chose the apostles intentionally. He chose the gospel writers intentionally because he wanted to use their remembrance, their tone, their personality, their writing style. So even though the gospels capture some of the ipsissima vox of Jesus, we still believe they're inerrant, which means without error. We believe that God wanted it to be done this way. For us, it's still the word of God. We're at such an advantage having four portraits of Jesus in the form of the four Gospels because we get such a clearer picture of who Jesus was and is by having four perspectives from four different people. And that's why even if in the church, if you ask people what their favorite gospel is, you'll get different answers because different gospel writers resonate with different personalities, even though they're writing about the same Jesus. And the reality is that much of the supposed messiness that we encounter in the variations between the Gospels is simply the result of us trying to fit the Bible that was written 2,000 years ago into our modern day cultural paradigm. And doing that doesn't make sense. And it's not right either. There are Hellenistic biographies written for specific people at a specific time and nobody in that time questioned their reliability because of the way they were written. Now the objection to the Gospels that I find most puzzling has to be this one, it goes something like this. We can't trust the Gospels because they were written by men who believed Jesus was God. Therefore, they're biased and, and so they can't be considered reliable. The reason I find this so puzzling is that the basis of this argument is this. 
something significant allegedly happened in history. If that something actually happened, it would demand a response. The group of people who allegedly witnessed this historical event did respond as though it actually happened. And then these men wrote about it. Therefore, we can't trust those men and what they wrote about it. That's the logic behind this argument. It doesn't make any sense because even non-believers would agree that if Jesus rose from the dead, hypothetically, proving he was God, that would make everything he taught true and it would make logical sense to live according to his teachings. And that's exactly what the apostles and the gospel writers actually did. They responded as though it actually happened, all the way to imprisonment, torture, and death. And yet because of this, their testimony can't be trusted? It doesn't make a lick of sense. They didn't just testify to the resurrection with their written words, they testified with their lives and with their blood. Surely that would make them more credible, not less credible. To the gospel writers, the history they were documenting was the most important information in the world. It was the information they cared more about and remembered more vividly than anything else that had ever happened in their lives. And to not accept that reality is the same as saying, we can't count the testimony of Holocaust survivors as reliable because they weren't neutral bystanders. The logic just doesn't work. In fact, make a note of this. To claim that the gospel writers can't be trusted to tell the truth about Jesus because they were biased is like claiming that Holocaust survivors can't be trusted because they weren't neutral bystanders. It just doesn't make any sense because if the resurrection happened, you would expect them to respond and live the rest of their lives exactly the way they did. If they didn't, the critic would say there's no evidence in their lives, there's no change in their lives to prove that they witnessed the resurrection, so we can't trust what they say. But now because they actually go and live as one would if one witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, they're not reliable? It doesn't make any sense at all. And perhaps the greatest irony is that those who want to disregard the Gospels as being reliable because the writers were biased are in fact guilty of bias themselves because they want to dismiss the Gospels as unreliable right off the bat without doing any serious investigation themselves. And if that's not bias, then I don't know what is. In our first message in this series, we looked at several historical sources outside of the Bible that confirm the historicity of Jesus, the fact that he was a real man who existed in history. And to this end, I just wanna share a little bit more about the historical evidence for Jesus that exists outside of the Bible. In the first century AD, Jesus was almost completely off the radar screen of the Roman Empire. Near the end of the first century, his followers were really beginning to impact culture in a measurable way. And this began to catch the attention of the Roman elites. But it wasn't until the early second century that Jesus and his followers started becoming a cultural phenomenon in the Roman world. And this is why Jesus rarely shows up in non-Christian sources before the mid-second century. But when he does, it's very, very compelling. So without getting into detail, we have three Roman sources that talk about Jesus in around 110 AD. We also have Jewish sources, including Josephus, that talk about Jesus in the late first century. Now why is that significant? Because both these Roman sources and these Jewish sources did not believe Jesus was God. They were not Christian sources. Now including the sources I just mentioned, there are a total of 10 known non-Christian writers who mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. To give you a point of reference for that, over the same 150 years, there are only nine written historical sources who mention the Caesar who was alive during the time of Jesus, Tiberius Caesar. So discounting all the Christian sources, ignoring those, Jesus is actually mentioned by one more historical source than Caesar Tiberius in his day. And for the sake of time, rather than reading you a bunch of quotes from those ancient works, J. Warner Wallace wrote a summary. I found this very interesting and put it on your outlines. It's a summary of what we would know about Jesus 
If all we had to go on were the historical sources that exist other than the Bible written by men who were not Christians who did not believe Jesus was God. This is the summary of the information we would be able to gather from those sources. Jesus was a real man who lived in history. He was reportedly born of a virgin and had an earthly father who was a carpenter. He lived in Judea in the region known as Palestine. He was wise and righteous. His teaching was so influential that he developed a large following of Jewish and Gentile disciples. He taught his disciples to live with the same virtue he exhibited, and his moral code was exceedingly high. But Jesus was more than a moral teacher. He possessed, quote unquote, magical powers and had the ability to predict the future accurately. His supernatural acts and teachings persuaded many Jews to walk away from their beliefs. Jesus claimed to be God, and his disciples readily accepted this claim. The Jewish leadership ultimately brought charges against Jesus based on his actions and teachings. He was prosecuted and crucified under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. There was an earthquake and darkness at the point of the execution. Jesus' followers reported seeing him resurrected three days after the crucifixion, however, and Jesus even showed them his wounds. His followers believed the resurrection proved Jesus was the Messiah. They adopted Jesus' moral teaching and lived their lives accordingly, holding to their beliefs in his deity, even though it meant they would suffer greatly at the hands of the Roman Empire. They were ultimately persecuted for their faith in Christ. That's an incredible amount of information from non-Christian sources about Jesus. And it happens to agree with everything the Bible says about Jesus. And I share this with you because I don't want you to miss the one crucial point here. The person who says, there's not even any historical evidence Jesus exists, is just flat out wrong. There's no other way to say it. They have no idea what they're talking about. And the person who acts as though the historicity of Jesus, the question of whether or not he existed, is still up for grabs, has no idea what they're talking about. It's just absolutely false. And no serious historian of any kind who believes that Jesus was even not God is really going to debate whether or not Jesus lived and died at the time he did, preached a gospel and had followers and allegedly did miracles. So how about the other historical information that is actually in the gospels? What about the geography that's mentioned in the gospels? What about the historical leaders, the cultural practices, the politics of the time? How accurate are the gospels? Again, for the sake of time, we don't have time to dig into it, but the short answer is they're perfect. They get a perfect score. For example, classical Christian scholar and historian Colin Hammer has identified 84 geographical, cultural, and political facts in the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts that have been confirmed by historical and archeological research. These facts mentioned by Luke prove irrevocably that he was an eyewitness to those things at the time that he claims. And you might think, Jeff, I thought we were talking about the Gospels, why are you talking about Acts? Well, because Luke wrote the book of Acts and he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And as New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg observes, I put this quote on your outlines, a historian who has been found trustworthy where he or she can be tested should be given the benefit of the doubt in cases where no tests are available. So the idea is that Luke has been tested on 84 points in the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts and he's earned a perfect score. Everything that he said in there that can be tested checks out based on history and archeology. span So when it comes to history, the logical thing to do in those areas where he can't be tested is to assume that he's telling the truth. And if Matthew and Mark tell basically the same story as the Gospel of Luke, which they do, then logically we have every reason to trust their accounts as well. And by the way, the Gospel of John has a wealth of verified historical information going for it as well. The Gospels get all the historical leaders right 
during the right times of history. They get the cultural practices right for that time in history. They get the geography right for Israel being part of the Roman Empire at that time in history. And anything that seems to be off can again be explained by simply doing the diligent research based on interpreting the Gospels correctly in their cultural context and getting the latest archeological information. The Gospel accounts simply line up with everything that secular history says about the politics, history, geography, and cultural practices of the time. They do not place Jesus in some make-believe world full of make-believe people. Rather, the Gospels locate Jesus accurately in the middle of Palestine in the first century AD, proving that the Gospels are, at a minimum, generally reliable. So write this down. The geographical, political, and cultural details of the Gospels are 100% accurate. 100% accurate. Well, what about archaeology? Well, archaeology can't prove that Jesus died and rose again. What it can do is prove and test whether or not the gospel writers got their facts right in the things that we talked about, politics, people, places, etc. And all I'm going to tell you about this is the gospels have a perfect track record too. In fact, Christians who are into archaeology anticipate with excitement every new dig that is done in Israel because every time they unearth something new, it only further verifies the gospels. There are no Christians dreading new archaeological evidence being unearthed from the time of Christ because every new thing they find further confirms the Gospels. One example would be that incredibly they've actually found the site of the synagogue in Nazareth where Jesus would have taught when he was up there during his ministry. They found one and they dated it to about 400 AD and they kept digging and then they found the ruins of an even older one dating to the time of Christ underneath that. Everything that's mentioned, not just in the Gospels, but in the Bible, lines up with archaeology. Now, archaeology only finds a fraction of what has existed throughout history, but every time they find something related to the Gospels, it lines up. Every single time. It complements the Gospels rather than contradicting it. Now, perhaps you've heard of some other flavor of conspiracy around how the New Testament was formed, how the Gospels got into the Bible. Maybe you've heard the Constantine one, which says, well, here's the thing. Constantine grabbed power. He was the head of the empire and of the church. And so he just got the gospels that he wanted into the Bible to suit his agenda. Well, the formation of the Bible is a topic for another very long day. I'd like to share just a brief overview just to help put a few issues to rest on this conspiracy theory. So how did the four gospels end up in the canon of scripture? I'm not gonna address the whole question of how was the biblical canon formed. I just wanna focus on the question of how did these four gospels end up in the biblical canon? What was the process? This is gonna be a little academic. There's not gonna be a test at the end, don't worry. This is just to make sure we have a resource to go back to if you ever need to do that in the future. The English word canon actually comes from the Greek word kanon, which meant rule or standard. Literally, a kanon was an item that existed in the toolbox of a Greek carpenter. We would call it a ruler or a straight edge. A kanon was also used as a metaphorical standard for behavior. So if we'd say, dude, you're not meeting the mark, you're not measuring up, you're not meeting the standard. That's how we would use a similar vernacular, the way that they would use kanon metaphorically. When Christians first started using the word kanon, they used it to describe their core set of beliefs or their rules of faith. So when they said, this is what it means to be Christian, this is the kanon, this is the standard. In time, however, kanon came to describe the official collection of inspired books, the contents of the Bible, what we call the canon. The earliest followers of Jesus were Jews, and the Jews already had a firm concept and paradigm that certain writings could be sacred and inspired. The most notable example is the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament. They considered those to be sacred writings. So from the Jews who became Christians came this idea that certain books would be sacred and inspired and needed to be designated as such. When Jesus came on the scene, 
He quoted extensively from the Torah, as well as many other books that are in our Old Testament. When Jesus did this, it was significant because this was Jesus authenticating the Old Testament. In other words, he was putting his stamp of approval on it and saying, this stuff really is sacred. It's scripture. If you believe in the Jesus of the New Testament, you get the Old Testament thrown in for free because Jesus authenticated the Old Testament by quoting from it himself. But Jesus also threw people for a loop because he spoke with such authority that he sounded like the scripture itself. You might remember the verse where the the people were saying, who is this man? When he speaks, he has real authority, not like the scribes. Jesus didn't even bother to copy the style of the Old Testament prophets who would always start their remarks with, thus saith the Lord. Instead, Jesus simply spoke as though he was the Lord. And people would hear him speak and they would say, there's no difference between when he quotes from the Old Testament and when he shares his own thoughts. There's the same authority on both of them. And people could feel this. They could discern this metaphysically. Because Christians considered Jesus to be the ultimate authority, the early Christians quickly came to view the words of Jesus as being equal with the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah and the Old Testament. Because to them, Jesus was the word of God. He was the word of God incarnate in the flesh. So once the teachings were written down that Jesus had shared, it was a natural step for Christians to consider these writings to be as sacred as the Old Testament scriptures. By the mid-second century, around the 150s, the late 140s, the Orthodox Church, that's the mainstream church, recognized Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the authoritative four gospels. This could have been the case even earlier, but we know from the records we have that it was definitely the case by the mid-second century. The reason for this clarification was because of the increasing attack of quote-unquote new gospels that we've talked about throughout this series, mostly from the Gnostics who were writing these fake gospels with contradictory teachings to the genuine gospels, and they were presenting them as though they had been written by the apostles of Jesus. In order to combat this emerging heresy, there was a need for the church to be very clear about what were authentic gospels and what were forgeries. So beginning in the late second century, Orthodox Christians began to make official lists of recognized texts, books of scriptures that were known to be legit so that the churches around the world could be protected from these fake writings. It's not on the list, we're not gonna use it. In almost every corner of the Orthodox Church, the four gospels were accepted as canonical. Occasionally some Christians would use other gospels as well, but in an incredibly small percentage of the time. But even in those cases, these four were considered unique. They were considered on a whole nother level in a class of their own. Early in the fourth century, so the early 300s, the church historian Eusebius listed the writings that were considered to be sacred, and he organized them into categories. He made his own groups. He had accepted writings, disputed writings, rejected writings, and then my favorite category, the unworthy of mention writings that he put. Eusebius began his list of accepted writings with the four gospels because they were simply that settled of an issue, as he called them the holy quaternion of the gospels. And everything else on his list of accepted writings is in our New Testament today. The first Christian to publish a list of authoritative writings that contained all 27 and only the 27 books that are in our New Testament was Athanasius, who was the Bishop of Alexandria. In AD 367, he wrote a letter to other church leaders in which he listed as sacred books all and only the books that are in our New Testament. And in this letter, Athanasius mentioned the heretics, the Gnostics, showing that he, like those who had gone before him, was doing this because he recognized the need for there to be a canon, a canon of scripture to protect against fake gospels and heresies, people trying to corrupt the word of God with false information. Now, if you know your historical dates and you've been tracking with me, It should be obvious by now that Constantine had nothing to do with the recognition of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the sacred authoritative four gospels because it was a settled issue well over a century before Constantine even became emperor of the Roman Empire in the early fourth century AD. 
Eusebius did work for Constantine, but by that point, the four gospels were already settled more than a century earlier. So Constantine doesn't get in as fun and exciting as that would be for fictional history. And as we look back at the process of the formation of the canon, historians have been able to determine the fourfold process that was used to determine whether a book made it into the biblical canon of the New Testament or whether it was rejected. We're gonna go through this very quickly. There's just four quick things, four tests that a book or a writing had to pass to make it into the New Testament. Write this down. The first requirement was antiquity, antiquity. A book had to be old, really old, and it had to be proven. It had to be able to be traced back to the late or mid first century. They had to know where it came from. We call that in the world of antiques, it's providence, proof of where it came from, its lineage. The reason for this was because when you have an ancient writing that's close to an event that documents what happened, and then you have another writing come out over 100 years later that says something completely different, you know you can trust the older one because it's closer to the event. It's gonna be a more accurate source. The Gnostics were coming up with all kinds of new supposed gospels and saying they were old, but they couldn't pass this test because they were unable, obviously, to prove that they were old. There was no history behind the book. The second requirement was widespread usage, widespread usage. A book had to be used in all the leading, most influential and important churches because those were the churches where the apostles had been leaders. And the leaders of those churches were only a couple of generations removed from the apostles. So in other words, you would have had John over, say, the church in Ephesus, and John's replacement would have been raised up and trained by John, and that person would have raised up and trained a successor. And then we're already there at the time these gospels are being canonized. So when a writing was used in all of these influential churches, the Jerusalem church, the Antioch church, the Ephesus church, the Alexandrian church, It was important because it meant that the apostles by implication would have approved and authenticated that gospel because none of the apostles were going to let a false gospel be taught in their church. And the leaders that the apostles chose to replace them would have been able to as well immediately identify what was a false gospel by just looking at the contents. They would have said this is nothing like a biblical gospel. So it had to be widespread in its usage. Thirdly, the writing had to be apostolic, apostolic. That means it had to have a direct connection to the first followers of Jesus. It had to be either written by an apostle or by someone closely associated with them because that was the only way to assure that the writing contained the information the apostles had actually taught. It had to be apostolic, have a direct connection to the first followers of Jesus. And the fourth and final requirement was that a writing must faithfully represent the rule of truth, core Christian theology. It had to measure up to the canon, orthodox core Christian beliefs. If it didn't line up with that, it was thrown out. And we know from even what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the core orthodox Christian teachings were in place no later then 50 AD, because that's when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians in which he quotes that creed. All implications and signs are that core Christian theology was fixed almost immediately after the ascension of Christ. They knew what had happened, they were crystal clear about why it mattered. Those are four really, really good requirements, by the way, and so when people say there's a conspiracy behind what got into the Bible, those are four rock-solid standards, in my humble opinion, and pretty inarguable. If you wanted to keep the bad stuff out and get the good stuff in, I don't know that you can do much better than those four requirements. There was no conspiracy behind the Gospels, only a firm commitment to embracing the truth while refusing to tolerate falsehoods and protecting against forgeries. The geographical, political, and cultural details of the Gospels are precise and accurate. And I should just mention, many times they reveal details that archeology span disputes, and only later does archeology span unearth something which affirms what the Gospels say. So the Gospels are actually ahead of archeology, span and archeology span confirms this over and over. 
Archaeology confirms the Gospels with every new discovery. Non-Christian written historical sources confirm the Gospel accounts and outnumber any other historical figure of the time, including Caesar Tiberius. The Gospels accurately capture the voice of Jesus, the ipsissima vox. And when we do the historical research, we will find that based on the context of the Hellenistic biography, the variations in the Gospels make perfect sense and were not an issue to anyone who read them at the time. That's all they are. They're variations. There are in reality no contradictions in the Gospels. You can be confident in the content of the Gospel accounts. As I mentioned in the first message and at the beginning of this, I encourage you, just try and take three things that stick out to you from today's message, write them down, paraphrase them in your own words so that you could share them with somebody else easy and simply, it'll help you internalize what we've done today. Let me pray for us. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, thank you so much for your word and and thank you that as you have always done and as you continue to do to this day, you choose to do your work through people imperfect and flawed people, but yet you do your work perfectly. We thank you for using us. We thank you for using the apostles and the gospel writers. And we thank you for getting your word to us and preserving your voice, your obsessima vox. Thank you that because we can trust the gospels, we know that we can trust everything else in your word. Every promise, every assurance, every guarantee, We truly can build our lives upon your word and it is a firm foundation. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.